Thank you to our podcast sponsor, Samson Rope. Your rigging ropes aren't just tools of the trade. They do the grunt work. They have to endure dynamic loads, abrasion, and moving through hardware while keeping you safe, which is why Samson rigging ropes are specifically designed and engineered to meet the rigors of your job, the result of a legacy of over 140 years of innovation. Stable braid rigging line is the industry standard for arborists. A durable polyester double braid rope with a high strength to weight ratio, torque-free construction with UV protection. Put Stable Braid to work for you. Stable Braid from Samson, the strongest name in rope. Visit samsonrope.com for more information. This episode of the TCIA podcast is brought to you by Tree Diaper. Did you know that the normal one-year warranty on a new tree has nothing to do with tree establishment? Or that newly transplanted trees need two to five years of maintenance before establishment? It's because trees often lose the majority of their roots during the establishment process for a variety of reasons, including the expense of irrigation and the time of manual watering. Tree Diaper is a patented multifunctional plant protection system that absorbs rain or irrigation water before slowly releasing it back when soil dries. When used properly, it promotes healthy outward root growth that facilitates establishment and establishes is the long-term health of the tree. By reducing watering need, it significantly reduces the labor and water costs while increasing the survival rate of newly transplanted trees. To learn more about how Tree Diaper can help your company get ahead of proper planting maintenance for your customers and help you save time and money, visit treediaper.com. Matt, great to have you back, and uh, uh, we're looking forward to this episode. Last episode was wildly popular, and I'm sure this episode will also be wildly popular, mostly just because you're on it. So, again, <laughs> thanks for being here and waking up early on that West Coast side of the world. No, thanks. Appreciate it, and I'm happy to be here again. It's cool. You know, I listened to it a little bit of myself, and it was a uh, it's weird to hear yourself talk, but isn't that funny? Yeah, tons yeah. of messages, and they said it was awesome. So I'm just glad to keep it keep it rolling. Excellent. Yeah, it's it's weird being a internet celebrity now, huh? <laughs> you, you consider yourself to be an internet celebrity at some no, point? No, I don't. No. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> you have a lot of people following you on Instagram. How long have you had that account? Probably since 2011. Ah, that's that's uh like ancient times in internet yeah, history, isn't it? Exactly. Wow. Yeah. I think I was still cutting hair when I first opened my, oh, that's right. you were a stylist. Yeah. yeah. Where did you do that? Uh, Chicago. That's where I'm from and born and raised. So yeah, I worked in downtown. And then tell me again, how you got out of hairstyling and you were, you got into tree care. What was oh, that my story? Old man. My old man, uh, he works for a company in Northwest Illinois. And yeah, he got me a job after a storm and, just basically kept with it <laughs> yeah that's I do remember that well that's good hmm. cool so we talked a little bit last week about what your average work week entails now you know like after your uh salon uh career <laughs> so um your average work week last week you said you had to drive quite a ways for your commute to get to and from the job site which was just a lot of you know it's in the back country the mountains of Oregon a lot of steep hiking and felling hazard trees all day long 
And you also you also mentioned that you kind of had to train for that kind of work and plan that out. So could you kind of maybe go into more detail about your workout regime or what do you mean by planning for that kind of work? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, to me, I feel like for the job to be easier, you would have to be fit, you know, in your legs and uh, because you got to carry a lot of heavy gear all day. So your legs will probably be the first thing that goes out with the hiking and whatnot. So yeah, I don't, I, I mean, it, most people that do tree work are fit in general, you know, it's just wanting to go for long hikes and not, it's just not that get out of the bucket truck and get to the tree. And then that's it. It's, it's, uh, you know, right, right now we're running into fire season. So now we have to hike our fire tools up with our saws and our gas and if we have rigging gear or whatever, you know, so it's just adding more weight to more weight to the hike. So do you spread that out amongst crew members? You said you had like a 20 person crew. You kind of like make some people carry the rigging lines, you carry the blocks, you carry the saws. How does that work? Yeah, we try to, but um, lately we've been doing three to four man crews to split it up to help with production. So uh, yeah, there has to be a fire tool for each guy. And then, yeah, we decide who wants to take the heavy stuff that day or who always wants the heavy stuff. So, And how much with the heavy stuff, how much is that going to be like in total weight for the person carrying the, all the heavy stuff? Um, let's see. About two years ago, I, I had uh, a Husqvarna 372. I had a, a piss pump on the chest of me and a fully loaded notch climbing bag. And I would probably say that was almost near 100 pounds. So yeah, we were doing that and uh, that was pretty heavy. So you don't do anything. So you, you, you come into this line of work being fit and then you stay fit just by the job and you don't do anything extra um, on your off time if you ever have any off time? When I have off time, I do. I have some mental thing wrong with me where I like to go to the gym all the time. I, I, just, I just love it. So when I, if I can go to the gym, I just primarily worry about squats and deadlifts you know, just to build your core and your lower body. You know, I don't, I don't care about the biceps and the chest and the only the stuff that's working. You know, I don't, I don't do the show muscles. Work related. That's, that's pretty unusual. Most people go to the gym to try to get a well-rounded, you know, bubble look on their shoulder or whatever. So you're just focusing on your work tools. Exactly. That's cool. So is that part of your morning regime or um, tell me about what you do in your mornings? Are you working out? Are you just reading a book? What do you do in the morning? before you? Uh, in the morning, I barely make it out of my bed because my girlfriend usually wakes me up. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, morning regime is try to make a cup of coffee and just listen to some good music or a podcast on the way to work. I don't have any stretching regime or anything. That's just for the drive to get to work. And then while we do our morning meeting, I'll step aside and stretch my back a little bit or whatnot, but yeah, not, I don't have, I don't really have a set schedule or what I do right now. So as a crew, you're, you're not warming up as a crew. Uh, uh, you're, we, you're just maybe warming up individually. I find that a little bit surprising. Yeah. So we were having stretches and all that, but um, just with the COVID and all that, we try to stay far away from each other. And I don't know, it kind of took a back seat a little bit, but you know, maybe that's something I should imply again, because, you know, it does, it does help, you know? So, but yeah, I, I, most of us will we'll stretch on our own when we get to our job site before we get up there. So. so it sounds like everybody 
has a kind of an idea of what a healthy body oh, should yeah. do and how to maintain it then on their own. Yeah. Yeah. I would say Mike, of the crew that I have, we're all, you would say pretty good athletes and care about self health and all that. Yeah. They all eat good and it's pretty cool. And what do you mean by eating good? Is it barbecue every night or are you just eating handfuls of protein powder? Just, just protein powder. And then some guys, they bring in nice salads for lunch, you know, and just, just really, there's nothing like no one brings in a whole bunch of pizza or, or Taco Bell or anything like that to eat. You know, everyone's got a, a well-balanced meal. That is so good to hear. Back in my day, it was, you know, we were fueled by orange soda and, yeah. you know, whatever, you know, jerky, maybe it is all that potassium and, and sodium. So yeah. it's, it's really nice to see the incoming generation, your generation, more focused on your, your body and your fitness, which affects your mentality, your, your uh, endurance. So yeah, congratulations. I'm, I'm very, <laughs> very glad to hear that the young Thank guys you. are doing it right. Fantastic. So you said last time that um, you'll switch it up a little bit from your morning ritual. Um, one of the, the one of the things that propelled you through your career or the beginning of your career that was a success for you that that attributed to your success was that you were hungry for advancement and that yeah. you owned your job. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but how do you identify that character trait? In, in someone else. If I was a crew leader and I was looking for the people who were like you, um, you know, anxious to get ahead, what would I be looking for? What did you do? And what would I as a crew leader be looking for if I wanted to find someone like you in the crew? So I think one of the first uh, signs of that would be someone who's just, you could see that they're observant, but they're also staying busy. They want to, you know, show that they're working hard, like they're not just standing there waiting for you to tell them what to do. Either they're asking questions about what's next to do or, you know, what's the system and how everything goes as, and then they're just staying busy the whole time. And then when some new, let's say, you know, you're putting a face cut in, he comes around and, you know, just starts as eager to watch, you know, has, takes a step back and just watching. And then after the job's done, you know, if he asks questions or he or she asks questions about, Hey, why did you do that? Or, you know, just, just kind of stuff like that where it shows that they're paying attention, but yet still working hard, you know, you know, like what I've come into is guys come in here and they, they say they're really eager and want to learn and this and that and yada, yada. And then you get them on the job site and they just, they're either standing there just not wanting to do anything or you tell them to do something and they do it. And then they quickly rush to another task and just, they, they put everything on the back burner and they don't focus on the one task and then come to ask questions when you're doing something new is what, what I, I would say. Is that, is that like attributed to a lack of motivation if they're, um, you know, they can't hold their attention span or I, what is that inherent character trait or can you train that out, you know, train motivation into a person? I don't know if you can, I feel like you can train it if you, if you inspire them you know, maybe inspiration will, will help uh, fuel that fire for them. But uh, yeah, I'd say it, it can't be a character flaw because when I was 19, I wasn't motivated to do anything. And then I, you know, 21, I was motivated to do whatever anyone asked me to do and do it extra good, you know, so. What changed? I guess I was inspired. I don't know. That's, I guess that's the best way I could say it. I was inspired so how, that I found something that I like. 
so if you couldn't motivate a person, I mean, you say that would come from inherent inspiration. How would you inspire someone, your 19 year old self to then um, become your 21 year old self? Uh, I would probably, you know, if I, if I saw some, a glimmer of promise, then I would probably approach them and just try to, you know, really, really bring them in and just, you know, say, Hey, why don't you come over here and watch me do this? And then we'll go over what I did and, you know, something like that. I, if that's a hard question because, uh, but I'm glad it's, I'm, you know, I can, I, I'm trying to answer it because it makes me, it's going to help me later on in life. It's, but, it um, is a pretty subjective question. It's probably not fair because that's, this is the question probably every employer is, is waiting to, you know, get the answer yeah. for is how do you find motivation in someone who's not showing it initially? But it sounds to me like what your description of, uh, you know, trying to inspire somebody uh, sounds like you're, you know, maybe taking on a mentor role, maybe, you know, not a, you know, official, you're the mentor and I'm the mentee, but, yeah. uh, you know, you're taking it on yourself as a leader, as a mentor, to try to bring this person along. I mean, at least if, if they're still on the crew and they show up every day, there's some motivation there. It's oh, not no. like they're totally flaking out. So you're trying to then mentor them and maybe pull that out of them somehow. Uh, I mean, so you, you, you stand, you know, close to the person, you um, show the task and you give them critical feedback when necessary. And then maybe, maybe over time, that person then uh, sees the potential of learning this, this information and staying focused. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of asking you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's hitting the head on the, the nail on the head is um, exactly what you just said. And uh just being able to, you know, I feel like what's going to really inspire someone is them. If you give them a task, you go, you walk through it with them and you show them the right things they do. And then they ace it by your direction. I think that will, could help them motivate to, oh man, I really think I should do this. This was fun. I learned, I was able to understand the directions and I was successful. So, you know, I think that'd, that that'd be nice if we could narrow it down to, you know, that specific of an objective. It sounds, that sounds plausible. It sounds, you know, overly simplistic, but I think, and based on what you've been saying, I think that that's probably a very good way to approach, you know, uh, pulling motivation out of a person. As long as they're, again, as long as they're showing up and they're still clocking in and clocking out on time and not completely falling asleep on the job, there's a little bit of inspiration in that person. So, I'd love to see you, you know, walk, walk with a person and, and take them from that point A to point B and kind of unlock that door. I'd love to see uh, yeah, what your response is to that. Uh, yeah, definitely. I've, uh, I felt like in the past three years, there's been a couple that uh, I've, I've helped and they've just, they've succeeded. So it's like paramount to what they're doing. You know, they weren't, they weren't climbing and then, three months later they were deciding to get into a 160 foot tall tree and speed line the limbs across the house over the power lines and you know i got to witness some of that that was pretty cool that is is great that's uh you know kind of like a graduation moment for your mentor or your mentee your students you know yeah exactly the karate kid moment (laughs) well flipping that around let's talking about mentorship a little bit so um, you know, as a leader, as a crew leader, as a mentor, uh, you, you try to use different techniques or tools to motivate, inspire people to the next step to plan A, plan B. What if I was a crew member and 
I, uh, you know, was looking for inspiration and looking for motivation, who would I look for on the crew that maybe could mentor me? Say, let's say the crew leader was not you and not, not awesome crew leader like you, but maybe just a kind of there for the paycheck type of a crew leader. We've all seen those people oh, yeah. just kind of gliding. But if I'm, um, if I have some self-inspiration, self-motivation on my crew and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm groundy or something, I'm coming in entry level and I want to succeed, how do I go about finding a mentor that could, you know, uh, move me up the ladder, so to speak, especially if it's not on my crew or if it is on my crew, anyway, words in, in my mouth, into your mouth, tell me your viewpoint of what you think I just said. Uh, I think, you know, that person, um, hopefully they're observant about everyone they're working with or their other avenues in the industry. They kind of can see who, who really knows their stuff and who, you know, depending on what type of style of work you want to do, production or anything like that, you kind of hone in who you, you see is the guy that everyone looks to get the job done and has a good attitude or, you know, just, I guess you, the guy, the superhero on your crew, everyone has one. Everyone has that silent, silent guy that just does his work, but he, he does it really well and he owns it. That's, I think that's the person, you know, as long as you see that he doesn't do anything unsafe, I think most companies have that one guy and that's who everyone should flock to. He may not want that, but I mean, I feel like that's the best way to go as, you know, and he might warm up to wanting to spread knowledge, you know, and that, that goes to where the character of the, the person wanting to learn, you know, so hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, it did. Very great insight that uh, it's actually very eye-opening to me that all I need to do is just really look for someone else who's just slightly motivated, <clears throat> pardon me, or who can get the work done, who shows up on time. It doesn't have to be the crew leader or the supervisor. Uh, it could be somebody who's just been there maybe a year longer than me, as, you know, as long as they have safe operating techniques, or if they're maybe just a little more ambitious than I am and, and they're getting the information before I do, then I can go to them and, yeah. you know, ask them for some guidance. That's, yeah, that's, that's a good point. You said uh, superhero, you know, uh, you don't have to be a superhero on, on your crew, but most people would like to have some sort of a superpower or think they have a superpower. Crew leaders, supervisors, sometimes they have a, you know, a superpower of motivating people or uh, high productivity or organization. What is your personal superpower that you use on your crew? I guess I, I tend to try to do the stuff that people don't want to do. You know, I try to do that. And uh, I also, I guess I don't really have, would have a superhero thing, but I, I speak up for the people. Like I, I speak for the crew. I make sure that everyone's voice is heard, I guess you'd say. And then when it comes down to the work, I like, I like to do the, the scenarios where I have to really think or someone's going to get hurt. You know, you have to really, you have to really be into that situation that you're in or, 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 or something bad could happen, you know? So I like, I like to be the one that goes into just take care of all the problematic stuff. That's great leadership right there, Matt. Let me tell you, just inherently, it, you feel not, not, not like it's up to you, but you make it happen without being told. I mean, maybe that's your role as a supervisor, but if this is your superpower where you see uh, a need and you're doing the, the dirty work or making sure that everybody else has their head on straight, um, that's a pretty amazing superpower in itself. Yeah, I try to I try to help the crew, and you know if 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 I hear stuff around that people are kind of dissatisfied or 
anything like that. I try to gather my information and then bring it to the, the source of where all the problems are coming from and try to get it handled, you know, and that's another thing I, I feel like I've been my past couple of years of being a leader and all that is to help do that. That's really great. Everybody <laughs> on their crew should have somebody like you. You could come work for TCIA and sit in the office with us and yeah, we would man. follow you everywhere and make you do all the dirty work, of course. <laughs> uh, oh, you don't want to, you don't want to work in an office. You want to, you want to climb those giant trees out in the woods. Yeah. I want right? to climb and yeah. hike and fall timber and yeah. Do you, you, you don't have to climb a lot of the um, hazard trees that you're working on out there. Do you? I mean, they're giant trees. Huh. They're usually hazardous. You're not climbing them, are you? No, not on this project too much. I did have to climb a couple of weeks ago to put a rope in a tree, but on my side of the project, it's uh, there, there's no climbing really. There, I think there's a there's gonna be some climbing in the next couple months, uh, because they are having us climb trees that are on a cliff, so we have to rappel down the cliffs and kind of cut the trees that are hanging off the cliffs. So. I'm, I'm, I'm now just starting to get to see, have eyes on those trees. And um, yeah, we're slowly starting to get a work plan together for all those to come. Get about 300 feet of rope and uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> make yeah, the new I'll... guy haul it up there. Yeah. <laughs> well, after you start working on these giant trees, I want to, I want to, I want to talk to you and find out uh, if you have some sort of a, like a, an imaginary scenario for working off of a spar, a hazard spar. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of give you an example ahead of time. Uh, if you had to create a, uh, a work plan to uh, ascend a burn spar to rescue, let's say, an orphaned bear club cub that was you know, caught in a wildfire, what, what steps would you take to set up a spar, um, you know, a spar climb on a hazardous tree? I would probably take a look at the base to see how bad if it's cat faced and what the root system's like and you know if i if i see that it still has integrity but the the stability of it's a little little off i might use some guy wires i might guy the tree back if i can get a nice anchor point and then um yeah i'd probably will go up the spar set my own time point probably set up a I don't know if it's a little baby bear or whatever, uh, either set up to where I can take them or set up a rigging device on that spar to kind of help, you know, rescue that bear with my crew or whatnot, you know? So it's going to probably depend just like in every situation, what's around you. If you're, if you're going up a solo spar, that's, you know, maybe in a clear cut, yeah, you're on your own, but maybe you'll have other trees around you. You could, uh, you know, tie an overhead, um, high line too, or something. Exactly. I don't know. It's, it gets pretty complex for that little bear, but we got to save that little bear. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, you, you certainly wouldn't just approach that tree. Hopefully you wouldn't approach that tree and then try to ascend it the, at the first approach. You'd be mm -hmm. able to maybe plan something, maybe throw a sandwich to that little bear so we can stay overnight and you <laughs> can then bring in the gear that you need potentially. Yeah. yeah, no, definitely. Something like that for sure. Yeah. It would have to be situational, but yeah, you know, you'd have to do your, um, just, check all the things about the integrity of the tree and what can you work with and then what equipment do you have? Yeah. We'll get that little bear down. Don't you, <laughs> don't you worry. <laughs> well, talking about additional situations, um, back when you were doing tree work, when you were doing uh, arbor culture, tell us a few of this or a couple of the situations that were 
sticky and iffy that uh, you had to approach back in those days. Yeah. So um, one that really sticks out in my mind is about, uh, I think it was two years ago, there was a, there is a tree outside of where the Camp Creek, the campfire started, you know, the one in paradise, there was a big Ponderosa and it was hanging over three set of federal power lines and it was cat face burnt. And it was like, Oh, probably, I think it was 180 foot tall tree and it leaned back over the lines. And uh, I got photos of the tree and whatnot, you know, and how cool it was, but we had to set up two guy lines back about 60 feet up the tree and then I got up the tree and removed the top out of it to where it wouldn't hit the lines or anything and then uh yeah came down took the guy lines out and luckily it didn't fail then and then we were just able to fell the tree and that was successful that was probably that was a that was a that was one of the ones that got my heart going was was the risk that it was um burned out was it completely a, just a shell what was the risk on that yeah the, the, yeah it was just a shell i blow it and it had just massive amount of tree above it above the burnout you know it was a it was a tall tree so it was barely there so uh what did the what what did the cut look like when you got all the way through it was there like three inches of folding wood on and how what, what was, what was uh, it the just diameter had corners I, it had to have been like almost uh it had to have been over 48 dbh but it just barely had a couple inches of hinge on the corners because of how bad it was burnt out <laughs> what did you feel that when you were up that high or did, were you did you feel every spike on that you I know tried like, not to i tried to be super careful not making it shake that much when i was flip lining up but when i got up and took the top when i when that top committed to where it was going yeah that tree uh it moved a lot <laughs> Had to cut that's, the hinge off. That's a pinch right there, right? A pinching moment. <laughs> yep. Oh, well. Talking about stumps, uh, hinges. Um, you you get a chance to read your stump, you know, all day long. Uh, sometimes yeah. people only get a chance, maybe once, twice, maybe not even that often in a day to read a stump. Um, tell us what you look for in. Let's say you're training some. You're training me because I don't know. Uh, what, if we go up to a, a stump that I've cut, maybe 34 inch diameter pondo or something, uh, tell me what you want to see on the stump that you would then explain to me is a good cut or a bad cut. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm just going to go over a process that my, one of my favorite mentors went over with us when I first started getting the falling game. His name's David Perkins. Um, he's a, he's just been an awesome mentor to me. And, um, so he has a, when, when we all first came out there, it was, you know, you got your five-star felling plan. It's height, hazards, leans, uh, um, what's around it, um, your preliminary target, what type of face cut you're going to use, and then your, what type of back cut you're going to use. So there you go. But the way he taught it is we have to gather, before you do anything, you have to assess where the tree's going to go, what's around, what's hazardous, where, where can it go and where can it go. So that's, you're assessing the hazards. So then you do a 360 of that tree and you plumb bob it out. You, you get each lean front and back, side to side. And then you come up with a preliminary target. So that's where you decide where to look down your gunning sights to make sure that tree hits a target. So then you go, you figure out where you want the tree to go. You plumb it out, you put a flag there. That's just the starting of it. 
And then you get 90 degrees of that target you set. And then that's where you are going to, um, that's where you're going to aim for. That's where you aim for. So the tree hits that target. So that's where you're going to gun to after you do all the lean calculations. So then you do that and then you measure the tree. You do 10% for the hinge. You do 10% of the tree diameter. That's how you, you gather your hinge. Okay. So then you, you mark it out. You make your face cut. Is it a, is it a conventional? Is it an open face? Is it a humble? And you mark out your hinge, which is 10% of the diameter of the tree. When you and mark then, out your hinge, are you talking with the saw? With a, with a, you can use a saw, but we, we, uh, we were keeping a little ruler, like a, um, not a ruler, but a, a level. We'd have a level on us and we would put that on the side of the tree. And you know what, it's a 10% of a 30 inch tree or 36 inch tree. You know, you want to go three and three and I don't know the exact math, but, you know, we would go like three and a half inches on the hinge or three and a quarter. So then we would mark that out and then we would decide if we're going to bore it because that would be for precision felling. Because when you bore the tree, you can automatically set that hinge and then you could stack wedges on the bad side and quarter around until you get to your trigger point. And then you hit the trigger and then it should, you know, you got to hit wedges and whatnot, but you can get that tree to go exactly where you want it. So that was, nice. that was the felling process that I went through to get precise when I was working on the transmission lines and whatnot. And then when the tree is off the stump after it falls, um, you take you're a looking look. For that, you're looking for that perfect strap of hinge. You know, you want that perfect 10% of hinge and you want to make sure those corners on each side of the stump are matched up to where you were gunning. And then you look at, okay, what side compressed and what side pulled on the fibers. And that's how you can say, oh, well, she was pulling hard this way. I could have gunned a little bit more to the right. So it, it wouldn't have pulled so hard. It would have compressed. So, you know. But you don't know that till after the fact, right? You don't know that, but then you can, you know, you can kind of see and kind of remember, okay, how close did I get? And okay, if you come across a tree with that much lean again, or that much limb weight on the one side, you know, you can kind of say, oh, well, last time it pulled that way. So I'm going to try this a little bit different. So you put that in your memory bank. Yeah. Yeah. The, the guy we worked for, uh, Perkins, he's a, he's a, he's a perfectionist and kind of, you know, Caitlin and myself and our old crew that we had, he taught us, you know, perfection, have a pretty stump, make it count, make your best stump, make your next stump, your best stump. So that's what we would kind of live by when we were doing that. That's a great mantra. If the stump was, let's say we have a newbie, let's say it's me again. Uh, and if the stump didn't have that 10% hinge or the, the holding wood, or, or if it was um, angled somehow without needing to be, you know, like if my gunning was off, if my sights were off, if we were looking at that stump and it had a triangle of a of hinge, um, you know, or the maybe the back cut was absolutely level with the, the, the notch, um, what, what, what things have you seen that newbies like me would commonly make? What kind of mistakes would they leave at the stump that would be a teaching moment? Sometimes they see they made a face cut and they, that's all they see. A lot of them leave a step or a Dutchman in places where you can't see because there's sawdust in the kerf of the apex. So that's the first one that I usually see. And you see a that you see a part of the hinge that's gone. There's no hinge because there's no apex and no kerf. So that's usually a telltale sign. 
you know, you got to really look into that face cut to make sure you have a strong apex in the curve. And then, you know, um, a lot of people don't get the level back cut, you know, at first, you know, it, it really takes time with either you, you learn how to put that saw on the tree before you make the back cut and you take the time to take a step back and look, or, you know, some people don't understand the actual ergonomics of a saw and where you should hold that saw and what pressure to put, because they're built for that to be a level back cut. You know, you just have to understand the mechanics, how to make it that way. That's a very important point. I've seen uh, some recent crane cuts where, you know, it's just a through cut or a, you know, yeah. a bypass cut coming off on a crane and it's not as precise. It's a, diff a different t type of precision. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen some new, um, new cutters kind of, you know, on a crane cut, the, the cut does not match up. I mean, mm -hmm. it's an effort to actually to get it off that last remaining little half yeah, inch yeah. of wood. Uh, and so if, if I'm on it, if I'm on a, a spar or um, I'm doing crane work, first of all, for me, that's probably not the place to learn how to make cuts. Mm -hmm. uh, so what, what, what would, what situation, what, how could that have been prevented if I'm on a spar and my crane cuts are, are not aligning? How do I make that level all the way around when I'm on a spar? See that what I noticed when I was doing a lot of climbing work. I could cut in a tree better than I could on the ground before I started falling work. So for that, it took a lot of uh, body mechanics, where to have your arm, where to, where to balance that saw, you know, and then um, walking around, not, not, not being scared to walk around the tree or dogging in and curve cutting, getting a curve and then taking a step back from your, in your lanyard and, and seeing is that bar level, is that thing going across to the other side? Do I have to walk around the tree? Can I go in and mark the far side and watch my gunning site and key, and create a straight line and then get on the other side and finish that cut for an overlap cut for, or they call it a snap cut or, you know, the, the Mark Chisholm V cut, you know, it's just at that, at that point, it's observing, observing and knowing the, um, the mechanics of your body to help use that saw while you're in the tree. So observing an, an, an experienced climber making those cuts or observing, just observing just... the saw as you use it around the tree. And um, yeah, you, if you shouldn't be in a crane anyway. You shouldn't be on a crane if you can't use this, make and understand the cuts that you need to, to do at first, you know? Right, right. Shoulda, woulda, coulda, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it happens anyway. So how do you, how would somebody practice that? I mean, if you don't have a bunch, you know, acres and acres of burned timber to practice on, um, I, I guess, say, I, and people end up doing it, but how, I, I'm just wondering how, how would you bring somebody up into that skill level? So basically, um, if there was, you know, residential, there's times that you can, um, you can leave stumps or stobs or give them extra wood to cut to where they can do that. You can, you know, pretend, make a scenario for them to make a snap cut on a stump before you've, you've leveled that cut, or, you know, you just... You, you try to find the opportunities in a tree that's already standing to, Hey, you know, come over here. I'm going to, I'll show you how to make a, a snap cut real quick. And then, yeah, I want you to try one. And, you know, the, a lot of the guys, when we were doing the falling work is, and it was in residential scenarios, they, after we, we would leave a little bit of a high stump for them. And then they would come in and just try to make as many face cuts as they can on that stump, you know, cause they wanted to get good at it. So I think that's, that's a good one with saw. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So that's a, a very good classroom out 
out in Mrs. Uh, Smith's backyard. Yeah. So while we're in Mrs. Smith's backyard and we're talking about practicing hinges, um, that's a great opportunity, especially while we're still on the ground, to talk about escape routes for oh, yeah. newbie saw users. So um, give, me an, give me an example of how you would prepare uh, an escape route for some of the big hazardous trees that you're working on in steep, rugged backcountry. And then maybe an example of, of an escape route in a you know, very wide open manicured lawn with a smaller tree that actually uh, will fall smaller. So all that, yeah. go ahead. And yeah, that's funny you bring that up because I've been getting a lot of backlash on some videos that I've posted because people say I run, like, why am I running from the stump? You, 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 I, I think I got called, you run away from the stump like a little girl. Someone said that yesterday. And what? Um, yeah, that's what you one... do when a tree is falling, isn't it? <laughs> Run out, exactly. get out of there. <laughs> Someone's like, oh, you should own that stump. So then, so I'm glad you brought this up because that's a main thing that I do. I personally am always off the stump. I do not stay there. Every death is within the first 16 foot on, of that tree. So to, to do that, you know, I feel like you need to swamp your work zone. You need to really swamp your work zone. You have to understand which side is the good side of the tree and which side is the bad side of the tree. Bad side of the tree is usually where the lean is. You don't want to cut under that lean. So you want to be able to establish which side is the good side, which side is the bad side. Is there rot on this side? Is there something that this tree could collapse and crush me if I'm under it? There's that. Then you, you swamp your work zone. You make sure you have a clear and distinct path and if you you know you get the muscle memory you, you practice it a few times you know you say hey i'm gonna run this way i'm gonna throw my saw there i'm gonna do that and if that doesn't help you know you put some flagging out where you want to go put some flagging out there's a little bit of a a marker for you to know hey that's where i gotta go that's exactly where i need to go so that's one thing that i like i i try to stress upon to everyone is at least more than 16 feet on a 45 degree from the tree on the good side, never escape on the bad side and don't run backwards of the tree run on a 45. Do you just make the one escape route? Um, when I was doing forestry, we were taught two escape routes on 45s if possible. Do you have yeah, a, a two, plan yeah. B? Yeah. I always have a plan A and plan B of course. Yeah. So that that's where it goes. You know, you, you, you swamp the whole work area then you come up with, okay, if, if the tree decides to fail that way, then I still have this other route to go this way, you know? So that's where the muscle memory of you practicing before you even put that back cut in. It's funny that you'd get called out for making an escape route and leaving the stump. Uh, it is not a, a test of, um, no. you know, brilliance or manhood or whatever to stand there and watch a potentially hazardous tree with a huge cavity, you know, watch it fall just to you know, be close to it. What smell mm. the resin. It's so in my hey. mind, I, I vote for you. I I'm like, oh, yeah. make your escape route, go ahead and run it. Uh, be a little girl if that's what, what it, they call it, but you're going to yeah, be a weird. live little girl. <laughs> yeah. I, like I just couldn't believe someone even said that this day and age, you know, and it's just like, whatever, you know, but it's just because every day I see things that could hurt someone super bad on the stump. And, you know, every day, you know, every week there's, oh man, that limb fell out as I was running out or, you know, the trees, you know, it's just, I've, I've seen it every week now, you know, so wow. that's, uh, that's I'll keep being the gazelle. So if you see all these weekly, if, you know, weekly, if you're seeing 
these hazards, are they the same hazards? Have you been able to, you know, figure out how to mitigate some of these hazards or are they out of the blue? Every new uh, incident is just unplanned, you, unaccounted you can, for. You can do your, your observing and your due diligence and try to plan out every hazard in that tree, but you know, there's always that percent of unforeseeable stuff. So that's where you, um, where your escape route counts and, you know, just, just reading the, the way the woods are acting that day and the wind and, you know, this, and just, you know, doing, just checking everything, but there's still a little bit of uncertainty and what can go wrong, you know? So yeah, it's, it's hard to see on the inside of a tree, just how hollow it is or just how crispy it is. And with some of these, um, Wood rot diseases, oh, sap rot. So I can't pull it out of the top of my head, but you know, some of these sap rots, these white rots, uh, they just crumble the tree. Oh, yeah. You know? Sometimes they're not even visible. So you get your saw, you know, a good six inches into that and you're just blowing powder. <laughs> uh, that's a that's a red flag right there. So yeah. I'd 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 be running my escape routes. I would have no problem with that. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. There's it's just, you know, we have these things in place to help help mitigate almost every foreseeable thing. So you, most of the time, if you follow the plan that you have, you will be successful, you know, and that's not even most of the time. That's almost a hundred percent of the time. Keep looking up, make sure you, you have an escape route, always swamp your area and have good communication. Would it be beneficial to maybe power up your saw, get more torque and cut through that wood faster? Like, have you ever made any oh, saw yeah. modifications? Oh, oh yeah. My, all my saws are, uh, they're all modified and rippers. Yeah. So get yeah, it's that faster to have, yeah, no, they're all port and polished and my, a good friend of mine does it. And, uh, yeah, that's another thing too, is safety is cutting speed of the saw. You got big trees hanging over your head that are super nasty. You want to cut through that wood as quick as you can, because that's less exposure to anything on that stump. So you really need the stump empowered to help with having to make it a safe, um, a safe scenario, I guess, or a safe uh, work site. I, I can't stress enough that you need a quick cutting saw on these trees. When you, when you port a saw, does it uh, wear out sooner? Mm, I think you can get a, if you use the good, good fuel and, you know, you, you don't, you clean it every day and you, you put the right air filters and all that, um, you can get a couple seasons out of it for sure. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a trick. I think I want to learn how to port saws for some reason. It uh, yeah, sounds like a, it would be cool. cool. Get a machine shop. It's, it's just a reason for me to get a machine shop. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got uh, a good buddy. He, uh, he lives up here. His name's Gordy. He does some of the best work. So that's cool. Cool. I'll bring in my, bring in my saws. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I, I jumped ahead a little bit. We were talking a little bit about crane work and doing some cuts um, on a tree and how to make those cuts match up. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing about your climbing system when you're working on cranes or I'm, you know, everyone always wants to know what everyone's setup is. So, uh, yeah. can you kind of describe your crane setup? Yeah. So, um, when I started doing crane work, I started climbing with an SRT device called the rope runner. So I was on the rope runner because, you know, a lot of in Illinois, we were able to tie into the ball. So I'd rather climb around the tree instead of tie into the ball, but I do like that easy ride up. So it was all situational. Sometimes I would much prefer tying into the tree after it picked me up in the tree. But what I did like is when I did tie into the ball is that with that SRT device, I can go from double rope to single rope. 
So I would double rope to, to, to tie the rigging and all that. And then double rope to back to where I'm going to make the cut. But then I would, as I would pull the rope and where I was making the cut, or if I could give myself a little bit of tying point to, to make sure, you know, to account for some unforeseen swing on an, on a super awkward piece, I would choke off SRT to where I had another tying point and I could either bomb out of the tree quick, or I could swing out of the way or anything like that. So then SRT and double rope device is my go-to for crane work. So let me see, you, you would hook into the crane with double rope uh-huh. and then work into the tree in single rope well, and reposition. No, that, <laughs> Explain that I would, yeah. Yeah. So I would work the tree double rope and then it would depend on if um, it were, I'm making the cut, I would choke off SRT. So I would swing around the tree and tie the rigging double rope. And then before I make my cut, I would choke off SRT because usually you're making a cut in bigger wood. So you, you could choke off on a stem a little bit above you or right below where you're cutting, you know, just so you have an access point to where if you cut your lanyard, you could fall into another system or be rescued and whatnot. So it was your escape route, basically. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I yeah. always... I always had an escape route too. Once I finished that cut, I kind of, I kind of spiked down a little bit and have the saw a bit over my head. And then I would finish, just finish cutting the sapwood or whatever. And I could be below that cut and then read where it's going and whatnot. So that's, so that's your, your crane setup. Is that how you would also just work a tree? Just, just doubled rope with a single um, at, mm. uh, escape route? What's your uh, regular climbing system like? Kind of. Regularly, I, I climb every tree SRT. I don't know why. That's just what I do. I don't know. I just love SRT. Um, I would do double rope here and there to get up in like those big pines, you know. If I can't shoot a line, I will flip up the tree and then start double lining up to the branches, double lining up each limb, you know, and then get up, choke off up top of the tree SRT, and then work the rest of the tree SRT, whether it be rigging limbs or negative rigging the wood or yeah i i love srt <laughs> srt is very useful i'm surprised to hear that you don't use it to access those tall trees isn't well, that kind of where it shines yeah well when i when i i get frustrated if i don't hit my shot in the fourth time yeah so if i can't hit it my fourth time then i'm just gonna flip line up the tree just get on out there yeah so we're, we're talking removal tree. So you're on spikes in a flip line or are- uh, sometimes, no, I, mm, I like climbing double rope too on, I mean, no, not double rope, but, uh, without spikes as well. You know, I don't, uh, it doesn't really like, yeah, the spikes, if I have, if I'm removing it, but if I'm pruning the tree, then yeah, I'm going to take the time every time to get that set to not go. Yes, you are. Spikes. Yeah. <laughs> you're no, not going to spike up a, a pruning tree. Yes, oh no, never, <laughs> never that. <laughs> Yeah, no. SRT has really come along with all the um, components that are available now, and um, yeah. they're just getting more and more unique and uh, efficient. It's it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch that segment of the industry and how it's just kind of exploding. Yeah, it was it was crazy going down to New Zealand and some of those guys that helped push the forefront of a lot of the SRT devices that are out, and you know, really they've really shown the different techniques and all that for SRT down there. Those guys are awesome. And they're always pushing the envelope and making it awesome. That's very cool. Yeah. We can tip our hats to those guys. Yeah. Well, what, uh, what, what component or piece of equipment climbing gear 
have you purchased in the last year that really made a difference? Has it been the rope runner? Yeah, the Notch Rope Runner Pro too. I mean, I try not to plug a company that, uh, you know, I, I like Singing Tree. I like Kevin Bingham. That guy's the man. Uh, so I don't really want to shamelessly plug a company because I don't know. It's okay to say what component you like. Yeah. We talk about yeah, some brand names. The Rope Runner Pro has been the other device that I've bought. There's still a little things that I thought they would have changed, but yeah, that thing is been awesome the past year that i've had it i think anytime we're looking for uh the next iteration of components or equipment you know they might have to take small leaps rather than fix everything that you would hope that they would fix on the next uh revision i think there's just a lot of testing a lot of consideration that goes into i think it's it's prudent of manufacturers to take maybe small steps in their in changes of their uh, gear or equipment unless it's an absolute you know, hazard or safety feature, but um, it makes sense to me that Rope Runner didn't completely fix everything that that you were hoping that they would do. It just yeah. makes sense. So uh, you talked a little bit previously. We're gonna switch gears out of the tree. Uh, you talked a little bit about um, back in the day you were running a loader, a grapple loader. Uh, I've got some questions about grapple loaders. I, I just love the whole grapple thing. It's just so amazing to me. Back when you were running your, your loader, was it a manual or was it a remote control? Oh, I I didn't run the grapple. My dad did. He gave me opportunities to run the grapple, but I was mainly the guy cleaning up the yards. For oh. the <laughs> okay. I was, yeah, I, I, but I have run the grapple and um, it was always, it was apprentice loader and it was on the back of the truck and, uh, you know, it was the big joysticks and the foot paddles to sw- swivel and all that. I didn't like it because then I couldn't climb the trees and whatnot. Oh. So. <laughs> <laughs> you were not the, it was not the favorite thing for you. Yeah, exactly. Well, I won't spend a heck of a lot of time on grapples. I just have, you know, a question uh, just from your point of view, your, uh, you know, limited experience with a grapple, what kind of like, what, what tips or information can you get, give a newbie grapple operator, maybe your old self? What, what tips would you be able to you know, give as far as operation or best practices? I mean, without being an expert, just the basic day-to-day things that you said, huh, I wish somebody would have told me this before I found out the hard way. Uh, understand the limitations of that piece of equipment and how to make the proper setup, knowing where to put the truck, knowing how to put the outriggers out, knowing if you need to have pads or not, making sure that no one's around when you put those outrigger legs down and just understanding the limitations and the weights that truck can handle i would say it'd be the best yeah that's absolutely critical to know actually the capacity that your equipment uh, can handle whatever you're using so um that's probably the first thing an operator would should know is just how much they can push their machine before exactly pushes back That's a good tip. Well, so yeah, more about machines. We hear that your crew uh, works with the Cenoboggan. Is that the 718? Is it a big uh, loader? A, yeah, there's a 718 and a, what's the big one? The 735? Oh, is it? I thought it was eight, eight something. Well, it could be. I don't know. It's got some numbers and it's bigger, but um, <laughs> yeah, we, we got some, we got two good operators down here and um, yeah, I work the one who has the big one the big Cinnabog, his name's Brett. He's really dialed. And, uh, I actually did some work with him last week and we got to, I got to watch how fast he can go with it and, and just how productive he can be. And then how a climber and a Cinnaboggin can kind of, well, I wasn't a climbing or anything, but how we can work together on the ground for him to, 
maybe have a piece that he can't reach with the saw or cut it whole. And then he can just grab it and we can cut it from the ground and he could take it and put it to the spot, you know, like almost like a crane, you know. And it would work. It probably works best on paved roads, gravel roads. You can't take that thing off track, can you? Well, there is one. I think Atlas now has bought a Cinnaboggan that's on tracks instead of tires. So wow. I think that one has been shining off road for them. I wonder how I wonder what the. um you know, the tilt capacity on that thing would be, Yeah, I couldn't imagine it being more than 30%. The thing is top heavy. Yeah. I have no idea, but I would like to see that thing in action. <laughs> Me too. Me too. So Brett, the other operator did, what kind of, um, what kind of training did he go through to, you know, to, to be certified as an operator of the Cinnabogan? So from my understanding and all the conversations when we hang out and stuff that he's from a logging background. So he's been running yarders, skitter, uh, heel booms, uh, all, all the stuff you'd find on a logging site. And that Cinnaboggin actually has a bunch of components that you find on each one of those logging equipment. So it was just basically he had to kind of put it all together and, you know, get used to all the new technology in it. But yeah, he's, he's quick and efficient and super safe with it. How long has he been operating that? I think he's been operating now on it for a couple of years. And I think he is also helping uh, train the new guys on the Cinnaboggin. That's so, awesome. Yeah, he's, he's one everyone looks up to and asks questions about and what you can and cannot do with the machine. He's a true mentor, just yeah. like you. Yeah. Well, can no, I stand in that line to be trained to operate that thing? Yeah, you definitely. Come on out. Love to come out and do that. We're always and looking for new operators. Your girlfriend, Caitlin, is an operator of the Cinnaboggin. Is that true? Yes, yeah. She, uh, she ran a 718 for a couple weeks. And uh, yeah, she, she's like me. She, um, she likes to run equipment and whatnot, but she, right now she really wants to cut trees down. She really oh. wants to be on the stump. You know, she wants to, and you know, what's amazing is, you know, we're talking about what to see on a perfect stump nine times out of a 10, her stump is perfect. Wow. It's like artwork. So yeah, it's cool to hear. We got these two older gentlemen on our crew. They're, they're world renowned fallers. And they watched her cut the first day and they like took their hard hats off and were just, oh man, I've never seen that before. And they're, they're make, she's making us feel bad because her stumps are so beautiful. Good for her. What's, what's her background? Is she from a forestry background? Yeah, she's actually, um, uh, she went to forest. I think she went to Ohio state for forestry and then she's from Ohio. So yeah, she worked for a couple of residential companies out there and then, moved out west to get into falling trees and then working on fires. And then that's, you know, that's how we met and whatnot. Yeah. She's really shined and she's, she's just uh, so talented. So it's pretty cool. How, how did she get that way? What's her character trait, her superpower that gives her the ability to um, have these great skills and to have old guys give up all hope uh, where, where <laughs> does that, where does, where does her superpower I'd lie? Say she, I'd say she, she, doesn't have, you know, she doesn't have the thought process to even have an ego. So she doesn't rush. She takes her time. She, she thoroughly thinks about everything that she's doing and is just in tune with the chainsaw or anything that she does. She just is just so with it. She becomes a part of it, you know, and just really works. You know, it just works really good. Wow. We got to figure out how to clone her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know she's Send so shy. So it's hard, for, you know, she, brought up the idea of maybe having her come talk with me on this or whatnot, but yeah, you know, she's a little shy. So. Well, we'll, 
we'll keep bugging her until someday she decides <laughs> to just come on the podcast and just get rid of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I'm so glad you guys are able to uh, you know, support each other and to work together. And it sounds like you're a great collaborative team together. Um, I'm sure, you know, in all the good times and all the bad times, it's nice to have uh, a, a working partner, a crew member who, you know, can kind of pull you up by the bootstraps if you need it or if you need to pull them up or, you know, someone you can lean on because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing with like a days and weeks and months of just hot hiking and sawdust in your face for hours and hours and hours that it's, it's kind of a, it's probably a head trip to keep going. You know, you're in very dangerous territory, very dangerous work. Um, it's nice to have, a, a, like, like I said, your crewmate working with you. What, what goes on in your head, Matthew, when you're at the end of a grind? How do you keep going? What actions do you take? What are you telling yourself in your head? What are you telling Caitlin? What is she telling you? I'm somewhat of a masochist. I like the hard work. I like the grind. I like getting my butt kicked. I, uh, <laughs> I, um, I don't know. I, I like, I, once the work gets harder, it like feels my fire as to say. So um, what, what really keeps me going is my best friend is out here working with me. And then I have other good friends that are working with me out here. Uh, my relationship with the owner of the company keeps me going. And the guys at the Academy that I work with and that I keep in talk with this, it's just, it helps me, um, want to keep moving forward because of the great support system and and my crazy ways you know crazy ways it sounds like you've got like a near perfect situation out there yes that's pretty good that's amazing i'm i'm very happy to hear that i love it when people are um, vested in their work and they're getting the returns and they just want to continue to do that and to give back to the industry to their crewmates it sounds like that's where you are yeah no, I can't complain about anything. I'm just thankful for where I'm at. <laughs> sounds It sounds like a great place to be at, Matthew. And um, I hope you can uh, continue many productive years in that capacity. And uh, it just seems like you're on a, a skyrocket to uh, really great things coming <laughs> I up. Hope, in the I hope. I, I didn't think of anything like that. But, you know, um, whatever I can do to give back to the industry and help anyone and uh help my family and friends out as well, you know? That's very much appreciated. And again, the, the traits of a good leader, hats off to you. How many times have I taken my hat off to you? I'm running out of hats. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, thanks, Chucky. And I really enjoyed talking with you. And thanks again. Thank you. Thank you to our podcast sponsor, Samson Rope. Your climbing ropes aren't just tools of the trade. Your life literally depends on them. Specifically designed to endure any environment you throw at them, Samson climbing lines not only meet the rigors of your job, but are engineered to keep you safe. The result of a legacy of over 140 years of innovation. Hyperclimb is a new 100% polyester 11.7 millimeter double braid climbing line engineered for both moving and stationary rope systems that run well with your hardware and Pru6. Hyperclimb's low elongation is key for long ascents and dual purpose climbing. Hyperclimb from Samson, the strongest name in rope. Visit samsonrope.com for more information.